right. Thanks a lot for that. Um, so in, in my first talk, uh, I really tried to lay the foundation for why we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, sola scriptura, not because we inherited it from church tradition, but because it, uh, it's taught in John 1, it's taught in Matthew 28. We saw it worked out in Ephesians 2.18. Um, with this talk, I'm really going to shift over. Uh, it's still going to be sola scriptura. We're going to Galatians 4, 4 through 6. I'll be putting that up on the screen. That's where we'll be spending most of our time, Galatians 4. But I really want to shift the energy over to um, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So another Protestant Reformation emphasis. Um, and really focus on the Trinity and salvation, or the Trinity and the gospel. Um, and how our belief in God as Father, Son, and Spirit naturally goes with uh, our understanding of how we're saved. We glimpsed that a little bit in Ephesians 2.18 as we talked about access to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Uh, but with Galatians 4, I hope to really show you how to, how to consistently think about Trinity and gospel together. Yeah? So we'll slow down quite a bit when we get there. I want to move pretty quickly right now through um, uh, just a couple of uh, introductions to how we think and talk about the Trinity. There is this quote, uh, you might imagine I collect books on the Trinity, I have shelves of them, and a lot of them start with this quote, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind, try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's on the first page of a lot of Intro to the Trinity books. I'm not fond of it. I, I actually think that a lot of people who write it on page one of their Trinity books also aren't fond of it because they never just say it themselves, they always say, as someone has said. You know what I mean? That's kind of like, I'm not saying this, I'm saying someone said it. I'm not even saying it's a good thing to say, and here's why I think they think that, uh, because if you think about the, what would you say in advertising, the value proposition here. Here's the doctrine I propose to you, and if you think too hard about it, you'll go mad. But if you get it wrong, you'll go to hell. So, I'm just, like, motivationally, I'm just thinking, like, what, what's the pitch? Like, why... Why am I supposed to think about this, you know? Uh, all you did was like ramp up the anxiety level and give me no promise of any good outcome. Um, I actually, uh, this is actually a way of starting into the doctrine of the Trinity that I just think slams the door. Now, some of these books that have this on page one are pretty good books. I think they like slam the door, but then open it up and say, no, no, don't worry. It's actually not that scary. And they kind of bring you back in. I'm going to, in the interest of time, skip this guy. Bye, Robert Sal. It's a longer quote. Uh, it may be the source. Robert South in 1700 may be the guy who said this in more complicated, old-fashioned language. But um, what I want to get to, though, is straight to the proper approach to teaching the Trinity. We should be careful that when we start teaching on this doctrine, we're not slamming a door shut or warning people in this way. Like, you have to choose. Do you want to be insane or damned? You know, like that's just not a good way to go. It's got to be a way to put out a welcome mat and say, this is a Christian doctrine. I even want to say that I can understand the doctrine of the Trinity as much as God wants me to understand it. Now, ultimately, it's a description of the divine mystery, and God is, um, while he's knowable, he's incomprehensible, right? I can know something by acquaintance. I can know something appropriately without being able to say that I comprehend it, you know, see right through it, totally have exhausted what there is to be understood about it. God has made known his eternal existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to us. And therefore, I am capable of saying, and any believer can say this, I know, I understand about the Trinity what God wants me to understand about it. Um, here's a passage I often teach from. It's uh, Deuteronomy, I think, 25:25. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has secret things, and they're his property. Would you like to hear some of them? Like, shame on you, right? You know, I can't, I don't have them. I can't, they belong to him. He kept them. He's got these secret things. Some of them he'll show us later and we'll say, wow, I, that was worth the wait. Others, I think he will never show us. I, I just think that's how the Lord is. He has secret things. Bible says so. One of the things I know about God is that he has secret things. Yeah, they belong to the Lord our God. That same verse goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. It's a great passage. It, it combines the fact that God is incomprehensible, is capable of keeping secrets. If there's something about God that he doesn't want you to know for whatever reason, that's on him. He can keep those things secret. It is not the job of a fancy theologian to sneak around behind God's back, see what's there, and then come out and tell you, right? Or just sit and smirk you know, with a look on his face like, I found out a secret thing of God. 
No, so there's secret things, but then there are revealed things, and those revealed things are ours. And look how much it says about how they're ours. They belong to us, like they are our, they are our mental property to have in our minds and say, this is a thing about God that he made known, and it's mine. I know it about him. And they belong to our children, which is interesting. For one thing, it means you can teach kids about the Trinity. More complexly, I th- or more importantly maybe, it means these things are teachable in general. Like if you can transmit them intergenerationally to young people, that means you can know them well enough to pass them along. And that's what the Christian tradition has done. Understood God's self-revelation as Father, Son, and Spirit, and able to pass it along in the form of teaching. So that if you, um, if you get trained in, in thinking as a Christian, you learn the doctrine of the Trinity. You learn it from the Heidelberg Catechism. You learn it from the New City Catechism. You learn it from songs we sing. It's sort of taught to us by the tradition and came from Scripture. The last thing in this quote from Deuteronomy 25.25 is that uh, the reason God has made these things known so that they belong to us and to our children is so that we may do all the words of God's law, right? So I could put that another way. I could say the doctrine of the Trinity is in some way practical. It's practical. It's, it's not simply knowledge to have in your mind, but somehow we're able to live it out in a way that's practical so that we can enter into a life of obedient discipleship to Christ. That great twin, Trinity verse, Matthew uh, 28, 20, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's also connected to obeying, right? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's a direct echo of this Deuteronomy passage uh, so that we can do all the words of the law. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is partly just for adoration, like what we just did, singing songs about the triune God. That's part of what it's for. So if you call that practical, it is in a certain sense practical, right? It's not like it's not getting your tire changed or anything like that, but it's practical to, to know God so we can worship him well. Um, it is also practical in a way that shows up in our daily lives, but sort of indirectly, right? Like, I'm not going to give you three tips to how to act like the Trinity. It's not going to be that kind of practical, right? But it is going to be something that actually is about our lives with God. Okay, and that's one reason I started with this fascinating medieval manuscript. I think it's 14th century from France. Um, this is from a long book about virtues and vices, about how to be good and how to stop being bad. And so, in front of this uh, Christian knight riding a, a blue horse. I guess horses were blue in the Middle Ages. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, he, in front of him are like the seven doves representing the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to Isaiah 11. And then they are facing off against the Christian soldier uh, on the right is facing it off against, on the left, a bunch of nasty, evil demons. They're like swimming at him. And each of the lead demons is labeled a vice or a soul-destroying condition or habit. And behind them are all these awful, terrible little micro-vices that follow in their wake, you know? So you might have covetousness as one of the main ones, and then all the different forms that covetousness can take on in our lives. And here's the Christian knight going to live a life of obedience and going to oppose these using the Word of God. So that's a, it's a nice picture. Uh, notice, though, the shield that he's carrying. You might recognize this as the shield of the Trinity, It has in the middle, it's all blurry and abbreviated and Latin, so like three strikes, but I'll tell you what it says. Um, It says in the middle, God, and it says around the outside, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so each of, so he's got the shield of the Trinity as he's riding into battle to obey God and uh, fight vice in his own life and in the world. Um, the, The nice thing about this shield of the Trinity diagram is it affirms that there's one God, so it says God in the middle. And then it says, the Father is God. That line going in, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But then they're connected to each other with the strange little word, is not. Because the Father is not the Son. But the Father is God and the Son is God. You see kind of the dynamic of this, right? Like, oh, one God, each of the three persons is fully God, but there aren't three gods, there's one God. Shield of the Trinity. For some reason, there's a good Wikipedia entry on this shield uh, that's up right now. I don't normally advise people to get their theology from Wikipedia, but this was a good entry last time I checked. So um, in addition to the words God and the names of the three persons, we could say what there is one of in God is being, right? There's one divine essence, like godness, whatever whatever God is, godness. That's actually a a Bible. The Greek word for that is uh, theotetes, but we could say godness. But then what there's three of are persons. The Father's a person, the Son's a person, the Spirit's a person. And so this is why the doctrine of the Trinity claims, uh, oh, and then like 
Each of the persons is the divine being, but the persons are not each other. Otherwise, they couldn't tell each other apart. They couldn't be in a relationship to each other. They're distinct from each other, but united uh, with the divine being. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is one being in three persons. Um, this is a, it's just a formula to remember. It's, it's not Bible language that we're using here, obviously, but it's when we explain what we mean by what's in the Bible. We say one being in three persons. This is super helpful because a lot of people out there in the world, I think, especially as our culture gets less residually nominally Christian, right? there's less familiarity with what the Christian claim is, kind of have to go into a little more detail. If you just say that God is three in one, as we sang, right, in one of the songs, our God is three in one, but notice what we do. That's fine. It's shorthand. Those of us who are worshiping the triune God and studying the Bible can say that and not be misleading ourselves. But if someone from the outside hears that they say three and one, and notice they, since you left out the, the nouns, like three, three what? Three, one what? What, what are we talking about there? Um, since you leave those nouns out, someone could think you're saying God is three beings in one being. See how that would be a contradiction? Or they might think you're saying three persons in one person. Just knowing this phrase, like we're talking about one being in three persons, means the doctrine of the Trinity is not um, irrational. It's not illogical. You know what I mean? It's, it, it surpasses our reason. It's a great mystery that's beyond our understanding. But it's not just a straight-up contradiction. And a lot of people are walking around in the world today thinking, I have a lot of problems with Christianity. One of them is they believe this irrational, absurd thing that can't be believed. Like, they go in and sing songs about nonsense. Um, in their mind, they're thinking that we're teaching a direct contradiction. God is somehow one being and somehow three beings at the same time. But you notice that's not what we're teaching. We're teaching one being in three persons. Now, that's a great mystery. I can't give you lots of examples of that because there's exactly one God, you know. Um, but it's not the same thing as a direct contradiction. Uh, I was in, in an art museum one time, uh, actually taking photos of images of the Trinity. as a, a statue I was there to take pictures of. And a docent came in leading a tour group and got to this statue of the Trinity that I was there to study. And she said to the tour group, this is a sculpture of the Christian theory about the Trinity, which was invented by St. Augustine of Hippo in the 8th century. And already I'm kind of staggering around thinking like, well, it's, theory is a weird word. Augustine was in the 5th century. He didn't invent it. I don't, I don't even know where to start with this. And I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not clear, like, should I be polite and not interrupt, or should I, like, stand up for the truth and jump in there? If I do jump in there, where do I start? Because it's so messed up. And then, and then the coup de grace was she got to the final point after several errors there, and she said, this theory teaches that God is simultaneously one character and three. And I was just, character? Where does... <laughs> Where's that? I'm reading the formula, one being and three persons. I don't know, I don't know where the word character came from. Anyways, I just advise leaving the nouns in, one being and three persons. Or stick as close as possible to scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Yeah? So that's nice. Um, the Athanasian Creed from the fifth century says that we confess one God in three persons, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the being. It's kind of a mouthful, um, but basically it means we're not confusing the persons, meaning we can tell the Father and the Son apart. You know, they're not, uh, they're not the same person. But we also don't divide the being and say, for instance, that there are three gods, as if God the Father is one God, God the Son's another God. So the divine being is somehow like two. Oh no, it's three. It's getting worse. There's more and more of them, right? At some point, you're just doing polytheism. Um, so this is what we teach. Let me say one more thing, because I mentioned that it's really helpful to get people over that initial hump of thinking we teach something irrational. If God commanded us to believe something actually, truly irrational, like actual nonsense, we couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? We don't have to comprehend something in order to believe it. But if God said, for instance, I am a square circle, and if you don't believe that, I will damn you, then we would have to say, okay, um, I can memorize that phrase and say it. I can put the noun, uh, I can put the adjective square in front of the noun circle, but try for a moment to believe in a square circle. Like, think about it. For, frame it in your mind. How many corners does it have? <laughs> like, how, how far from the center point are all the points on the perimeter of a square circle? 
Like, do a little geometry with it. You actually can't have a thought about that in your mind. All you can do is a word trick where you put that adjective in front of that noun and say, I will say these words because you told me to, but I can't actually believe it. It can't be mine. It can't be something I can actually hold to. That's why I started by saying, I'm not bragging, but I do want to say I can understand the Trinity as much as God wants me to understand the Trinity. Because the secret things belong to God, but this is a thing that's revealed. And so it's, it's ours. Okay, we can uh, talk about that more in q and I'm eager to get to Galatians. Uh, oh yeah, a little bit of recap. No, we're straight to Galatians. Here we are. Galatians 4. This is verses 4 through 6. I'll leave it up here for a minute so you can spot the typo and get the extra prize. There is a typo in there. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, let me just set up Galatians for you real quickly. It's a short, sharp letter. Paul is, I think it's fair to say, mad in this letter. You know, we've seen him write to the Corinthians, who are extremely messed up, but he calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. He can't wait to see them. He warns them he's going to be mad when he gets there, but like it's still, it's still, you know, it's 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 cozy. The Galatians is a really different letter. Short letter he writes and says, instead of saying, I thank God on every remembrance of you, which is a standard way of starting, he starts, Who has bewitched you to depart from the gospel? These are people who have heard the gospel. This is a church community who has heard the gospel. But then someone's come in and said, yeah, the gospel's cool, but if you really want to be right with God, you're going to have to keep kosher, go under the old covenant system, even though you're Gentiles and not Jews. You're going to have to actually, the only way to really believe in Jesus is to become Jewish and then believe in Jesus. And Paul hears that and thinks, listen, the Corinthians are up to like nine kinds of terrible things, but none of them are doing that. None of them have betrayed the very proclamation of the gospel. And the Galatians are right on that line. So it's really unclear whether he thinks of them as a church or not. He says, okay, you think you start by faith, but you get finished by works? I got three arguments against that in the structure of Galatians. And those arguments are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It actually, we won't take time to look at this, but the the outline of Galatians, uh, he starts with God the Father made a promise to Abraham, uh, right, that he would uh, justify him by faith. Um, Christ redeemed us by his death from the curse of the law. So there's the son part of the argument. And then to wrap it all up, he asks, let me ask you this, Christians. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by faith or by the works of the law? So it's a three-point Trinitarian argument for why salvation's got to be by grace through faith and can't be completed by the works of the law. It's a great Trinitarian letter. We're just going to zoom in on these three verses, Galatians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, there's a lot going on here. I want to focus on uh, first the Trinitarian part of it, right? Um, you can imagine that my study Bible has little triangles drawn all through it. You know, and I, I thought about marketing a Trinity study Bible that comes with pre-printed triangles, but I thought, ah, it takes away half the fun of drawing the triangles yourself, you know, and kind of finding the persons of the Trinity. Sometimes it's easy, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's all right there. The Trinity's here, but notice that the word God is holding the place of God the Father. Uh, 95% of the time when the word God is used in the New Testament without further specification, it's picking out God the Father. Uh, I think I talked earlier about John 3.16, God so loved the world. That, that's actually picking out the first person of the Trinity. The Father so loved the world. How do we know it's the first person? The word's God. How do we know it means Father? Because he sent his only son. What kind of God, what person of God has a son to send? The answer is that's God the Father. Same thing here in Galatians 4.4. 4. So I'm going to write over the word God, Father, not because I'm editing or improving the Bible, just because I'm trying to draw out the sense of what the word there means, and make it easier for us to pick out the Father sent forth his Son and has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So there's, there's your triangle, right? There's the, in your new annotated Trinity Study Bible, there's the three persons in a passage that's not about the nature of God. Do you notice how important that is? Paul's not saying, now, Galatians, you're all messed up. Let me step back a little bit and teach you about the very nature of God. There are three persons in the Godhead. That's not what he's doing. He's actually talking about the gospel, salvation history, and our experience of salvation. And in talking about that, he talks about the Trinity. 
I think, that, I think that's beautiful. Uh, I would love to have an extra chapter of Romans that's all about the Trinity, like, you know, just like laying it all out. Now, now brethren, concerning the three persons in the Godhead, I would not have you ignorant. I would be there for that. Um, I bet Paul talked like that sometimes. He had this two-year teaching ministry in Ephesus, and I think like, man, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that. What we have is what God inspired and gave us in Scripture, and in what we have in Scripture, the triunity of God keeps kind of, I want to say, sneaking in, right? Paul's not trying to talk about the Trinity. He's trying to talk about the gospel, and the Trinity stuff just comes out. So I think it's really important that there's a, it's almost a sideways proof of the Trinity. Paul believed in it so much that he talked about it even when he wasn't trying to talk about it. Yeah. That's what we get here in this statement about salvation. Here's the key thing that I want to spend some time on here in Galatians 4. So you got the three persons, you got the one God and the one work of salvation, but you got this double sending. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son and he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There are these two sendings that if you can focus on them in scripture, and they're everywhere once you start looking for them, the father sending the son and the father sending the spirit or the father and the son sending the spirit. So it's all over, especially the New Testament, prophesied in the old fulfilled in the new. If you can see those two things, you're really doing Trinitarian theology. You're really understanding the presence of God in salvation. It's a little counterintuitive because we're used to thinking, I have to count to three to be doing the Trinity, right? Well, kind of. Um, If you are studying the gospel of salvation and you get the way the Son and the Spirit have been sent, then all you have to do is say who they're sent from, and now you're counting to three, right? But it's these two sendings that are getting all the work done. This is how God saves. Um, let me. Uh, oh, let me say one more thing about this. Notice that Galatians four four says that God sent forth His Son. It's a, it's a little more complex of a word in the original Greek than just sent. Um, I think it really matters because God has to already have a Son with Him in His eternal life in order to, in the fullness of time, send Him forth. You see that? You see that structure? Um, we'll spend a little bit of time on that, but it, it really matters that it doesn't say here, in the fullness of time, God decided he was going to have to have a son so that he could then send him for our salvation. Instead, what it says is, in the fullness of time, God, in parentheses or brackets, who apparently always had a son but wasn't talking a lot about him for most of the Old Testament, sent him forth, right? There are references to the Son of God in the Old Testament, but it really belongs to the secret things of God for God to make clear, as he does in the New Testament, that he has eternally existed as Father and Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. What I love about this is, um, I suppose God's just sitting around on all kinds of information that we have not yet needed to know. When it came time for all the prophecies and promises to come true, and for the Messiah to come in the power of the Spirit to save us, that's when God decided to make the information clear. Right? Like when the salvation happens is when the information rides along with it. You see what I'm saying there? It's not that God said, hey, everybody, I have a son eternally here with me. You'll need to know that later. So just like right now, stick it behind your ear because one of these days in the fullness of time, this thing's going to happen. And at that point, you'll say, oh, that's why you've got a son because you were going to send him. Instead, what we get is it's need to know information. And when we need to know it is when the gospel goes into effect. Right? So, so Trinity and gospel are bundled in our salvation, but also in the revelation about our salvation. Right? This is made known to us at the same time. When the clarity of the fulfillment of the gospel promises happens is when the clarity of the eternal triunity of God happens. All that's kind of hidden there in that word, sent forth. He didn't start having a son. He always had a son. In the fullness of time, he sent him forth. And then on the basis of the finished work of Christ the Father and the Son, send forth the Spirit. Or in this case, send the Spirit into our hearts. Okay, let's move on to this other thing. I want to repeat myself a lot, but I don't want to repeat myself when I'm not planning to repeat myself. So here's the deal. This is a little bit more of a diagram of what's going on in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. The Father sent the Son, as Galatians 4 says, the Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then the Father sent the Spirit of the Son into our heart. So there's these two sendings. The word send occurs twice. Um, the Son 
works out salvation in our human nature. He always has the divine nature. The Son is in the divine nature with the Father. Then in the fullness of time, he takes human nature to himself, and in that salvation, in that nature, which he appropriates or assumes into union with himself, he works out salvation. He lives a perfect life, dies uh, an obedient death, rises again, and is ascended at the right hand of the Father. Um, That's where salvation is. Then on the basis of that, the Father sends the Spirit into our hearts. Now, I just wrote a whole book on the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to try not to say very much here. I'm going to kind of hold my tongue. But the thing to know about the Holy Spirit is just like the Son always was with the Father, the Spirit was always there. The Spirit's always been everywhere doing everything God does. And yet, there's a special entrance of the Holy Spirit into salvation history that waited on the fulfillment of the Son's work, right? Um, That it's when the Son dies, rises again, and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father in our human nature that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. That's this double sending that we get uh, in in Galatians 4. Well, um, I drew a little triangle here to show that even though we're talking about salvation history and the shape of salvation history, how the Father sent the Son and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, inside that triangle is the actual doctrine of the Trinity where we say, if in the fullness of time God showed himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit, then he must have always been Father, Son, and Spirit within himself from all eternity. I know it's kind of late on a Sunday night, but it, just take a moment and think away salvation history, like all that good gospel stuff I just talked about. If it had never happened, God forbid, God would still be Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Because if humanity had never fallen and needed redemption, God would still have been Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, if humanity had never existed, And then here's the big step, if you're ready to imagine away the entire universe. If God had never made anything, and all there was was God, God would be Father, Son, and Spirit. Unless you think God changed and is morphing and going along for the ride and growing up with human history, going like, ah, I used to just be me, but now I'm three of me, and that's wild. I I wonder what I'll turn into next. Like The cost is way too high to imagine a God who used to not be Trinity, but then turned into Trinity at some point along the way. The only alternative is to think he was eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, made that known less clearly all along the way, but radically clearly when? In the fullness of time, when the Father sent the Son. That's when it's clear. That's when the knowledge sort of dawns on us and we say, he must have always been. So that little golden triangle is just to show that's the eternal being of God, Father, Son, Spirit in the one, in the unity of of God. Um, Oh, and I I draw that uh, golden line. One of the most important lines in Christian theology is the, it's the line between who God is in himself and what he does for us, right? Because God is free and acts graciously and not out of any need or out of any gain he's going to get out of it. He does things in salvation history, but he always is who he is, right? And so that line to recognize the eternal identity of God uh, above, above the line frees us up to then rejoice in salvation history and say freely by God's grace. He didn't have to. He decided to do these things for us. These things he decided to do include the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Yeah. Here's another even more abstract map for you uh, with another category put in. The Son and the Spirit are eternally from the Father. And then in salvation history, they're also from the Father as they are sent, Right? It's worth making that distinction. Remember that line I told you is the most important line, that God is who he is above that line? It's worth making a distinction between how the Son is from the Father eternally and how the Son is from the Father um, at Christmas, can we say, right? Right? In the incarnation. Traditionally, Trinitarian theology has made up the word processions to describe the eternal, internal way that the Son and the Spirit are from the Father. They proceed from the Father and always did. Make it a little more tricky. They proceed from the Father without leaving Godness, right? Whereas then in the fullness of time, the Son, who always proceeded from the Father, now is sent from the Father. And so we use the word missions um, to be the salvation history thing. So a little bit of a tricky distinction, but once you start to see it, 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 not only does it make sense in itself, it starts to make sense of Scripture. That is to say, Father and Son are related how? Well, Son is from the Father, always was. Never wasn't. You know, the doctrine is eternal generation. They always existed together. There was never one without the other. 
and the Son always had this relation of being from the Father. Then, for us and our salvation, and that's a procession. Then, for us and our salvation, the Son is sent from the Father. And that's the business end of it. That's where we pick it up in Galatians 4.4. 4. He sent forth the Son. Yeah? The word missions we're used to using to mean, what, the cross-cultural communication of the gospel. You send out missionaries. They cross a cultural line and explain the gospel, and the word goes forth. The original use of the word missions in Christian thought was to describe the Father sending the Son, because mission is just um, uh, the Latin for send is missio, and uh, one who is sent is, is missioned or sent forth. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to illustrate this a little more. Um, I had a student of mine who was a cartoonist draw this for me. I'm also a cartoonist, but I didn't want to draw this picture, so I had him do it. This is a, an early Christian father named Irenaeus said, the, you can think of the Son and the Spirit as the two hands of God. So how does God get a hold of us for salvation? God the Father saves us by reaching out to us through the Son and the Spirit. Think about these two. Is, what's good about it is it's this mission. It's this sending forth, right? If I want to do something, I send forth you know, my agents who are me. <laughs> to, to pick them up. I'd have to make a person-nature distinction there that I'm not capable of making because I'm just me. Um, but in the case of God the Father, how does the Father do things in creation? How does he save? How does he keep these promises? Galatians 4, 4 through 6, he sends the Son and he sends the Spirit. Two, so two-handed kind of salvation. What's bad about this image, I think, goes without saying, right? Like, this is not the Trinity, Yeah. Right? It's not the, the Son and the Spirit are not um, appendages of the Father. It's not a puppet show. Um, this doesn't quite capture fully the, the personal distinction. But just keep it in mind. We've seen this picture before. Uh, I'll fast forward to this. This is on the uh, left side, just a little image of the um, Passion of Christ, so the death and resurrection of Christ. On the right side, Pentecost, with gigantic, scary tongues of flame that look like meteorites. Um, I'm just going to put this list up here. This is on a page in my book, Deep Things of God. Just for a moment, think about the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. Kind of call to mind biblical passages about them. And notice that the Bible talks about their work a little bit differently. They always go together, but there's a relative difference here in how we think about the work of the Son. The Son, for our salvation, becomes incarnate, right? Uh, Takes flesh, takes uh, human nature to himself, we call that, in technical terms, a hypostatic union, meaning it's not, a, it's not the two, two natures merging, like if God is yellow and humans are blue, they don't merge and make green, right? The Son, always being divine, takes to himself human nature in this hypostatic union. That is, he, uh, while remaining his own personal self, he takes human nature into union with himself. When the Son does that and becomes incarnate to save us, he basically takes over the human project that Adam blew and that we are all in the business of blowing and in, in following that Adamic trajectory. And he basically says, you blew it, I'm here to substitute for you and in your place, take over the human project and do it right, right? So he kind of, in a way, I can't think of a Bible verse that says this, but the son kind of kicks us out and takes our place and does it for us in numerous ways. That's the, that's the way that the son of God incarnate uh, works. When he does that, he replaces us and he completes the work of salvation. You know, when Jesus says from the cross, it is finished, there's a long tradition of saying like, yeah, he's talking about the completeness of salvation. And think about justification by faith, which is the result of the incarnate son atoning for us. We're justified and you can't be like 50% justified. Yeah, justification is not, it's not on a dimmer switch or a rheostat. It's like, it's a toggle switch. It's on or it's off. You're justified or you're not. So it's complete. It's all or nothing. Now, all that, I hope, is pretty familiar sort of description of how Jesus the Son saves us. Think about how the Spirit works in our salvation. The Spirit works not by becoming incarnate, obviously, but by dwelling within us. Yeah, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, the Spirit takes up residence within us, and instead of having a hypostatic union, like we would talk about in in the doctrine of Christ, there's inspiration. The Spirit sort of like breathes through us. There's an inspiration of who we already are. Where the Son assumes a human nature and has humanity itself as as his uh, property after that, the Spirit enlivens the human person. So one way to think about this is um, 
it all goes together, right? But within that unity, the son does something to human nature, but then you have to be personally involved in that. And the spirit uh, moves into you and unites your person to what the son has done in human nature. It's a package deal, but you can actually distinguish the work of the son and the spirit in it. Well, instead of sort of like um, kicking us out of the job and doing it for us, you know, replacing us, the spirit really uh, connects us and relates us to what's going on. Um, that is to say, you would say Jesus died for you and has secured uh, forgiveness for you on your behalf, like replacing you and taking your part in that. You wouldn't say of the spirit as he leads us in sanctification, the spirit is obeying for me, right? Or the spirit is growing in holiness. Instead, the whole, the whole way of working of the Spirit is on the basis of the work of Christ to enlist us in a renewal of our human, uh, of our human powers so that we actually can serve God instead of uh, rebelling against God. So there's an enlivening of the human person and a connecting and a relating of who we are to who God is. That is to say, the Spirit applies the work of Christ. Um, there's this great old uh, traditional way of teaching salvation that says the Son... Uh, under the heading of the Son, we have redemption accomplished, and with the Spirit, we have redemption applied. And so we need redemption to be both accomplished and applied, and the Son and the Spirit do that together. The Son accomplishes it, Spirit applies it. I'll show you this with a picture here in a minute. Where justification is all or nothing, sanctification, growth in knowledge uh, and obedience to Christ, um, is gradual and partial and involves conflict, right? So um, you could actually say, it's always weird to say, like, I'm growing in sanctification because that's a really dubious thing and you're kind of like searching your heart trying to find signs of growth. But what you can do is look around a Christian community and say, there are some of you further along than others, right? You can look around in a church community and say, some people have really gotten to a place that I aspire to get to, right? I want to, mainly, of course, I want to imitate God in Christ. I want to imitate Christ. But also, it's legitimate to say, there's such a thing as growth and holiness, and some people are working at a level that I would love to be led to. Yeah? And so uh, in that sense, there's a gradual or partial nature to the Spirit's work. Okay, let me try that with pictures real quick. First of all, here's a picture, right? Um, uh, we talk about the two sendings because we're coming out of Galatians 4.4. The Father sent the Son, and the Father sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's two missions, but actually theologians have serious arguments about whether we should call them two missions or one twofold mission, Right? Because um, to put it in Irenaeus' terms, the Father's not doing things with like this hand and then that hand. He's always doing things with both hands. So it's, it's not a side hug. It's like, you know, it's the full, it's, it's the Father um, getting a hold of us with the, the uh, integrated or correlated work of the Son and the Spirit. Yeah, so that's one, one thing. Oh, I just remembered one thing I did want to tell you about the Holy Spirit. I think I mentioned earlier uh, the other night, he goes by multiple names throughout Scripture. The, the, the main name that we think of is the Holy Spirit, but there's something like 17 different great names of the Holy Spirit. One of them is here in Galatians 4, 6. Spirit of the Son, that's the Holy Spirit. Why would he go by the name Spirit of the Son instead of um, the Holy Spirit? Because he's in our hearts crying, Abba, Father, right? So there's, a, there's this, you could also call him the Spirit of Adoption, as Paul does elsewhere. So I just want to clear that up in case you were kind of in the back of your mind going, I didn't see the word Holy Spirit there. You're exactly right. The name Holy Spirit's not there. The name he goes under in this passage is Spirit of the Son. We'll look a little bit more about how important sonship is here and why you'd call the Holy Spirit that in this context. Okay, here's another picture. Best I could do to draw how God relates to salvation history. I just wrote the word God because I don't really have a good idea for how to draw God. So God, really large is all you need to get, right? Not to scale, but like big. Um, Salvation history, I made a grid just because I want to emphasize the, the plan of it. You know, if you listen to that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 passage, it's all about the wisdom of God in structuring salvation in a certain way. And the main way that salvation history is structured is it's promise and fulfillment, as we've talked about, but it's also the Son and the Spirit. You know, the Father sends the Son, sends the Spirit, and that is the structure of salvation history. It's redemption accomplished and applied. That's, that's how it fits. Now, I also drew a tiny little spout there because um, I'm an evangelical and I believe in conversion and discipleship and all, you know, the whole, the whole catastrophe, the whole thing. I love it all. Um, but 
God is, of course, infinite. Salvation history is vast and, and cosmic. Your experience of salvation history is real, but local results may vary, and, and, and your experience of it can be greater or lesser, right? In a way, I mean, I love my conversion story. I'll tell it. I was a little confused the whole time, but it all came out okay. But I look back on it and think, my conversion, my testimony is just like a little crack in the wall, and I can look through it and see the greatness of salvation history. And looming up behind that, I can see the greatness of God. And that's great. I intend to do that. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Like, I'm going to do that. But what I don't want to do is let my conversion, you know, in the 80s in Kentucky with very mixed motives, because there were cute girls in the youth group or whatever else, and because and, and I wanted to miss hell and hit heaven, which is great advice, but like, it's not a it's not a worldview or anything, right? Um, I don't want to make my testimony have to bear the entire weight of salvation history or the greatness of God, right? I don't, I don't want to give into that thing where, where someone says like, well, how do you know what you believe and, and how big is salvation? I don't want to like have to go and squeeze and milk like this, this mid-80s conversion in Kentucky when I was young and didn't know anything and say like, it was so great. It's the greatness of what scripture talks about. I want to be able to say, It's a little tiny local pipeline that got me all the salvation I could handle and all the salvation I need. Perfectly sufficient, but it's coming to me from this vast reservoir of salvation history itself, which is funded by the greatness of God. And when I say the word God there is not to scale, it's because if I made it to scale, how big would it be? Infinite, right? Like the gospel is really good news, but there's something better than the good news, and that is God, the God of the gospel infinitely transcends even the good news itself. How much more does that transcend my experience of it? Now, the other good thing about that little pipe there, and it's a pretty good-sized pipe, you know, that's a lot of salvation getting through there. Um, The other thing is it can actually grow. Like, our capacity to receive and understand and live through the experience of grace can expand um, as we grow in Christ-likeness. So uh, you can get more um, of, you can get more of the experience of salvation. Okay, um, this is a diagram that I stole from my own book, so I don't really have to footnote it because it's me. Uh, but this is a diagram of the logic of salvation. I think there's something great about this, that when you get saved, you can say, I think what the, what the man born blind says um, in John, like they ask him, like, who was that who saved you? And he says, I don't know. All I know is I once was blind and now I see. So that's it. That's my whole story. I actually think if you read closely, he knows a little bit more, but he's being cagey and he's kind of trying to make them do the work. But that's, that's where it starts, right? It, it can start with just, I am saved by Jesus. But as you think your way out from there, you think, what must Jesus have done in order to bring about salvation? You know, so he called me, I have faith in him, and he has accomplished my salvation. But what must he have done? And then theology, you know, verses start flooding into your mind. Theology begins happening. You think like, oh yeah, I once was blind, but now I see. But also... I can say how Jesus did that. He reconciled me to God through his death so that I have forgiveness of sins. I had a personal problem with God, and God personally solved that problem in the person of the Son. Okay, well, now I'm doing some serious theology. Then you work out from that and think, well, not just anyone could have done what Jesus did and had that result. In order to do what he did to result in me being saved, he must be, I mean, he must be God, because if I have a personal problem with God... God couldn't just send somebody to fix it for me. If God sent somebody, that somebody had to also be the God with whom I have a personal problem. So now you're thinking even bigger thoughts. And once you say, Jesus must be fully divine in order to have accomplished this, that's a huge step. And the next step is, oh, this this changes how I've been thinking about God. God apparently eternally is the Father and the Son in the unity of the Spirit. You see how that works? It starts just like you drop a pebble in the water. It's just like, oh, blink, I'm saved. And it starts rippling out, and you go, because he must, must have done this to save me. Therefore, he must be this. Therefore, God must be as follows. To put it, I'll just plug in the theological terms now. Soteriology is the fancy seminary word for the doctrine of salvation, right? Oh, I'm saved. Atonement is uh, the good old-fashioned English word for um, being reconciled to God through, through divine action. Who must Jesus have been? Oh, well, that's the incarnation that we talked as briefly as possible about earlier, right? That he must be the eternal son of God who in the fullness of time took to himself human nature. And that last circle out is the infinite circle. That is, God must be father, son, and spirit. 
You see how that works? What I love about, oh, what I love about this is the way it starts from this gospel impulse to just understand what happened to me the moment I got saved. It's the Puritan Thomas Goodwin who says, more happened in heaven on the day you were saved than you could comprehend on earth. And, and I think that's his way of talking about how all of this massive theology about God and Christ and the Spirit is leveraged for that little experience of salvation. Now, the worst thing about this diagram, and I can criticize it because I drew it, um, the worst thing about it is it puts you at the center of everything. Um, and, and that's a problem. Like, it's fine to find where you are on the map and radiate outward from there with your understanding. This is a map of how your understanding grows. It's not a map of the structure of reality because I, I hope I'm not the first one to break it to you. You're not at the center of the structure of reality, yeah? Something more like a map. Again, it's not to scale. Just relative sizes suggest the actual scale. This is more like it. The Trinity, very large, infinite, God. Um, the incarnation, the joining of the second person of the Trinity to the human nature. So on the diagram, the left corner of the triangle is supposed to represent the sun, the Son of God, and the square is supposed to represent human nature. So um, if you dig into that left corner of the triangle, you can see it's in the space, like if this were a Venn diagram, it's in the space between both the human nature and the divine nature. It's, it's got them both, yeah? Then atonement is, of course, a work of the incarnate Son, and then your experience of salvation results from that atonement. So basically I like to show this because it's... Uh, you just had a quick introduction to systematic theology, the whole, the whole thing right there. Yeah, these are the major doctrines. Skipped over a few things like, I don't know, creation. Um, but, you know, basically it's all there with some details sold separately. Okay, um, now this takes us back to Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son and the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, I want to focus now on the word Son. And this works out really nicely because it... The word son occurs on this diagrammed verse both inside the Trinity and outside the Trinity. You see that? This, that is a way of talking about salvation. We experience salvation as being brought into the life of God, like adopted uh, as children of God. When that happens, what God is doing is taking something that is inside the divine nature. Sonship is part of what it means to be God. He's taking sonship and making it over to us in a certain way. Um, the eternal son becomes the incarnate son to bring about our adoption as sons. Yeah, So that we receive this adoption as sons because of the work of the eternal son. Um, here, here's how I want to say this. Um, there are a lot of metaphors or analogies for how we're saved. You know, we could talk about um, uh, being rescued. You know, saved itself is kind of a metaphor, like rescued as if you were falling off a cliff and someone grabbed you back. Um, redeemed, bought back, justified, cleared in a court of law. Uh, these are all sort of metaphors. Um, they're great, they're true, they, they really uh, strike reality metaphorically and get our minds into an understanding of what salvation is. Adoption as sons is in a certain sense not a metaphor. Here's what I mean. Because it actually is a reality in God, like sonship is a thing in the divine life, and then it's made over to us for our participation in it. It's, it's actually a direct application. It's not that we are everything the Son of God is. What he is by nature, we become by grace. But that sonship has a reality within God and as part of our being brought into salvation. So it's, it's higher than metaphorical in that sense. You can't say that about the other things like saved, redeemed, justified, stuff like that. These are all ways of describing what God does for us. Adoption as sons describes a more intimate fellowship than that. And that's what's going on here. And that's why the Spirit is brought in under the heading of the Spirit of the Son. Because in order for this to become real in our lives, God both has to do the work of adopting and make it take effect within us. And that's how the Spirit shows up in this description. The Spirit is in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, um, let me say just one thing about the Spirit here. This is, I can't go into detail, but um, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not God's Son, right? The Son is God's Son. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, Abba, Father, because, not because he's speaking for himself, but because he's speaking for us from within us, right? Um, the, I, 
I can't tell you what the Trinity talks about when they're at home. The secret things belong to God, right? But um, the Spirit does not call the first person of the Trinity my Father because the first person of the Trinity is not the Father of the Spirit. If he were, it would be the other son, and that wouldn't make any sense, right? Or it would be like God and son and grandson. It just, like it just wouldn't work. Um, but So when the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, an intimate, familiar cry that is, is how you would rightly respond to being brought into sonship, that's the Spirit bringing us to life and, as Romans 8 say it, conforming us to the image of the Son. Yeah? Making sonship a reality in our life as the Spirit of the Son. Okay, well, um, I'm going to show you a couple more really quick kind of cartoony pictures. I intended to go slow in Galatians 4, and here comes the faster bit. Um, you already know that, yeah? Processions eternally in the life of God, missions from God. Um, here's my quick drawing of the uh, mission of the Son. It's a little stick figure drawing of Jesus being born. That's a little manger on the left, dies, rises, ascends into heaven. That's a little cloud with Jesus' feet going into it. Um, Pentecost then, as this incursion of the Holy Spirit into salvation history on the basis of the finished work of Christ, is the Spirit getting a hold of us where we are, when we are, and applying the work of Christ to us. Or, to put it the way Paul puts it, putting us in Christ. So that when Christ died, we died in him. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. So that when Christ rose, we rose with him. Right, Born again through the resurrection of the Son of God, First Peter. Um, so that in a certain sense, even as Christ is enthroned or, or seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 2 tells us we are in him at the right hand of God. So there's your two-handed salvation. And I am going to stop. Yeah, I'm going to stop there and I'll leave that up on the screen. Um, this is the way that the teaching of the Trinity unfolds from um, the accomplishment of salvation. So Remember I said there's a lot to teach about the doctrine of the Trinity, and I, I like teaching it all. Um, but if I can accomplish one thing, it's actually not even to like prove that the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical. Because there's a way of proving that it's biblical, and then you saying, so what, why does it matter? And then I have to do a whole other lesson about why it matters. My favorite thing to teach is that the Trinity and the gospel go together. Yeah, that This is the key. If you if your powers of association begin to grasp this, it's like magnetically the, the gospel of salvation and the triunity of God go together and inform each other, then this will really change the way you read the Bible because passages about salvation turn out to be passages about God, right? And passages about God and his character and his identity turn out to be the background necessary for a deep understanding of what salvation is. So trinity and gospel constantly inform each other there's no way of getting to the end of that lesson and saying like, yeah, but why does it matter, right? There's a lot more we could talk about, about prayer to the Trinity, fellowship with the Trinity, communion with God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but you can see the fundamental basis of it all is Trinity and gospel being bound together in their accomplishment and in their revelation and by God's grace in our growing understanding of that. All right. I know he answered every question, <laughs> and we're ready for snacks, but maybe there's a one or two. Say your name, please, and uh, ask your question. Thank you for sharing uh, with us. My name is Daniel Flores. I'm a pastor over in Occidental. Um, something that you said that's going to stick with of salvation is funded by the greatness of God. I think that that it was so powerful. <laughs> Um, I have two questions, just about the language that we see here in Galatians 4. Yeah. When it says the title of the Spirit of the Son, can we make an argument that that is like a double procession from the Father and the Son, or what's mm. your take on that? Question one. And then question two is, with this language of born of a woman, I hadn't really noticed it in the context of Trinity. Is that just a Hebraism, or is there a detail there that we should pay attention to, that the Son is born of a woman? Yeah, good. So two, two different questions there. Um, so first of all, there's this famous centuries-long argument about whether when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we should say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and stop there, <laughs> or whether we should say he proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
Um, and believe it or not, this is like a church dividing conflict from, from a long way back. Um, um, and I tried to solve it in, in popular level language at an introductory level in, in my Trinity, in my Holy Spirit book that just came out. Here's what I'm trying to pitch as a unifying way of talking about it, because I think big picture, there's a lot of agreement. Um, everyone agrees that the Spirit gets into salvation history. The Spirit is sent from both the Father and the Son. Everyone agrees with that. Uh, you just, you can't, you, you can't read the Bible and not say, um, that both Father and Son send the Spirit. There's like five verses in John that say something like, I, um, I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit who I will send from the Father. You lay out all five of those and go like, wow, there's, there's five different ways of saying this, and the result is clearly the Spirit is in the church from the Father and the Son. Behind that, there's a question of in that golden triangle within the eternal life of God, is the Spirit from the Father and only from the Father or from the Father and the Son? I think what you can safely say is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father principally uh, through the Son. So that's, that's my short answer. Totally solves the disputed filioque question, and everyone will be all unified from now on. Um, uh, there are footnotes in the book. To say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father principally or mainly is something that Augustine of Hippo says. So that's the Western view. Um, but even he will concede mainly from the Father, principally from the Father. Uh, Maximus the Confessor on the Eastern side, writing in Greek, says, through the Son. So I'm kind of getting both sides to play each other's cards there and, and focus on what we can agree on. So, yeah. The other question about uh, born of a woman, I would say that that is a reference to the virgin birth of Christ, um, just like born under the law. Um, and so, in one sense, there are like two... Um, there are two ways in which we would say the son is born. One is what we celebrate at Christmas, yeah? The, the virgin birth is human nature. You know the word nature has um, N-A-T in it in the word root, and that's like nativity or birth. Um, they, you have the nature you're born in, right? I have, I have exactly one nature. Why? I was born exactly once. Now, you could also say if I'm born again, in that sense, I have a spiritual nature. But with regard to the son... He's got this other nature, the divine nature. He always had. He always had it from the Father. Um, so the born of a woman part, I think, directly attaches to the salvation history, to the, to the virgin birth. Yeah. My name is Adam. Thank you for sharing again. Thank you, Daniel, for those questions. Those are great questions. Uh, it made me want to ask two questions as well. Um, one question I have might not be as directly related to the Trinity, um, but it's just a question about helping us to understand the names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as God has revealed himself. Uh, and he's always existed as that for all eternity. Um, but what does it mean that the Son from all eternity is the Son in relationship to the Father. And maybe that's the procession relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of an addendum to that question is, it seems like an ancient understanding, and Hebrew understanding, like bar, the word for Son, seems to carry this weight of not just a biological Son, but something that is the same as which it came from. Maybe you could speak to that. Yeah. Yeah, so try to keep this from getting too far into the weeds, but you notice when I said um, that sonship is not metaphorical, I kind of hedged that and said, like, in a certain sense, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not an analogy in the way the other ways of talking about salvation are. The thing is that even to call the second person of the Trinity the son of the first person, to say that's a father-son relation, there's a kind of a revealed metaphor going on there. You know, like God's being who God is and saying, how do I say that in human? Well, it's not like God's then rooting around through all the dictionaries going like, if only they had a word for this, right? Because God like invented all the initial conditions of all the things we exist in and came up with words for. And then he revealed uh, this image. Um, nevertheless, when I hear that in the eternal life of God, there's a relation between the first two persons and that relation is a father-son relation, it'd be natural for me to start free associating everything I know about fathers and sons. It's like, well, every son I've ever met is considerably younger than their father. Also, every son I've ever met has a mother. 
And so let me now theologize about that. Well, notice I'd be immediately doing terrible things there, right? I'd be trying to describe the father-son relationship in God with one being younger than another. In which case, there'd be this phase of God's life where he was like, we want to say he would be just the father, but didn't have a son. But notice, if he doesn't have a son, he's not the father. So by transporting what we know from created sons up into God, we would totally abolish all sense, you know? So, uh, and then the other thing is like, where would I get a God-the-mother relationship to have inside the one divine being to produce this God-the-son who didn't used to exist, but then there was like heavenly sex or something, and then like God's regenerated. Now, this is like rank, nasty mythology. Like, it's like something out of Homer, right? It's, it's, like, uh, it's like the Greek gods or something. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like the story of how a family started existing in heaven. So that's a mess. Um, the church fathers knew this right away, and like early on, they had these long arguments about this and said, here's the thing, you take your experience of sonship and you abstract from it all the things that cannot be true of God. We just did the first couple steps of that, right? The son is not younger than the father. Uh, there's no God the mother to consider for the, like, the, gener- the, you know, the origin story. Um, we don't have to go with like how they met or anything like that. We can just rule all that out. What you're left with then is that a father fathers a son, and a son, you know, sons from a father. There's a, the, the, the first person is the principal or the origin or like the, the background of the first person, and that's not reversible. So even though father and son are co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, can't have one without the other, nevertheless, there's a structured relationship in which the son is from the father. From is a really short English word. We use the word generation. Uh, sometimes you just make it sound longer. All we're really doing is taking the, the revealed nouns, father and son, and turning them into verbs. The father fathered the son. You see, that's... Uh, so what I'm saying is, like, we're not smuggling in a whole lot of other information or doctrine when we say, I believe in the eternal generation of the son. All I'm really saying is father and son from eternity. Those are the revealed names. You can say one more thing about that, and that is... In modern English, we don't have a word for how a father brings forth a son. So we, we know that um, a, a child is born of a mother, but we wouldn't say a child is born of a father. So what would we say? Well, we actually don't say anything in English, right? If we're talking about horses, we could say sired, because we're really interested in bloodlines, but you can't say that about humans, right? You, I can't say I sired my son. And if I say I fathered my son... It sounds like a parenting word, like I'm involved relationally in his upbringing. We do talk about fathering, but it's not a parallel to birth, right? So we just are living in a culture uh, where our language does not have a viable word for um, as a mother gives birth to a child, a father does something to a child. We don't have a word for that. We can't say baby daddy. We can't, you know, there's, like, there's none of these words we can use unless we use the word begotten which if you look it up in an old enough dictionary means the male version of birth, right? The problem is I've been saying begotten all night and you're thinking like, yeah, it's a theology word. Yep, that's all it is now. It's not a word in our culture. If I say begotten, I'm either doing the begats from the Old Testament in the King James Bible or I'm talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not a, and that's why when someone hears that we believe, you know, I'm just trying to do simple, basic gospel Trinity and I say, Eternal begetting of the son. And people go, whoa, that got weird and technical. Like, I'm just saying father as a verb. Uh, it just sounds funny because we're... It's probably a bad sign for our culture that we don't have a word to connect fatherhood to, right? That's probably not a healthy culture. Did you have a second question that I didn't get to? Oh. Yeah, it was... The, the thought of, um, because I think some confusion can happen, I mean, in Christians in general, but especially in evangelism um, and, and teaching and discipleship, is that the son didn't become the son at the incarnation. Oh, right. So that's, that's an issue because we, that's, I think what people tend to think of is that, and actually, it's actually was, had been taught by a lot of prominent Bible teachers for a period of time as well, um, a few decades ago. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but that's not true. So how do we understand the difference between Jesus born of a woman, mm-hmm. the son of a woman and a, and a human 
genealogy yeah. and Jesus as the son eternal, not a biological, you know, divine, yeah. divine being. And so that's where the question of bar came in was, is there a connection to the idea in, in ancient history of the son, the son, not necessarily meaning a biological, it can mean that, but can also mean the same as Yes. Same as another person. So, yep. yeah. yeah, good. Um, yeah, that's right. So it's the early church kind of worked through this and, and said, we're trying to teach that the son is not a creature because that would be like Arian theology. The Jehovah's Witnesses today teach something really similar. The son's not just human, but he's some kind of super spiritual creature, creation of God. Um, yeah, the word son, it has this fromness idea, but it also has this sameness of essence. That is to say, um, Athanasius in the 4th century would say, um, by, by craft, uh, an artist might make a statue, right? Make a statue that looks just like him and say, oh, it's kind of in my image, right? Um, but he's making it. Whereas if he begets a son, he's actually producing something that has his own nature, whereas a statue doesn't. So there's a making versus begetting distinction um, that, yeah, that is important. And, and then here's the trick. Like, we're trying to talk about God. We're using the words we've got. Even when we're like doing, um, you know, Bible study and using the revealed words, it's still the words we've got given to us by God. And so you have to say like, well, what is God made of? Nothing. Okay, right. I mean, he's not made, right? <laughs> he wasn't crafted. So what's like the God stuff that God has? And that's a terrible way to talk, but you can see why you might need to talk that way to say, whatever the Father is, See, no word will work. He's not made of anything. He's not composed of anything. But like, whatever the godness is that the Father has, the Son has that same godness. And so in the Nicene Creed, there's this word homoousios, or one substance, or coessential is a word I used earlier. Um, it's whatever the divine essence is, the Son has it. Because you would expect a father and a son to have the same essence, right? Fathers don't have puppies. You know, humans don't have, like, statues. Uh, you know, a human father is going to have a human son, same nature. And so whatever that divine nature is, sonship captures that as well. So interestingly, this beautiful biblically revealed word of son gives us both the distinction between the persons and the unity of the nature. Yeah, it's all, it's all right there in that revealed word. And I think I stuck that landing if I stop talking now. So thanks. <laughs>